This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Arjuna Ardag. Arjuna Ardag is an awakening coach, writer, teacher, and public speaker. He's the author of seven books and many audio and video programs, including the 2005 bestseller, The Translucent Revolution. Arjuna studied with the great Indian teacher, Papaji, and is the founder of the Living Essence Foundation and Awakening Coaching Training, organizations that are dedicated to the awakening of consciousness within the context of ordinary life. What sounds true, Arjuna has released the book and audio program, Leap Before You Look, and the six-session audio series, Let Yourself Go. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Arjuna and I spoke about how one may channel light by becoming translucent, while also simultaneously accepting their shadow side. Arjuna also spoke about what he calls the myth of enlightenment, and that we can look no further than our own intimate partner if we are seeking a true teacher. We also explored translucent spiritual practices that can be done in relationships, as well as a radical release process for working with both fear and anger. And finally, we talked about what it might mean to live a life that is quote-unquote spiritually mature. Here's my conversation with Arjuna Ardag. Arjuna, you've introduced an interesting word into our spiritual vocabulary, if you will, which is the word translucent, that it's possible for people to live translucent lives and even to practice spirituality in a translucent way. You talk about translucent spiritual practice. So so tell us what you mean by this word and why you found it to be an important word to introduce. Mm. Well, you know, I borrowed this word from physics, from the physical universe. A translucent object is neither opaque nor transparent. So we know what opaque is, you know, if a wall is opaque, if you're a solid wall with no windows, if you shine a light against the solid wall, no light passes through, and that's called opaque. On the other hand, um, a, uh, an object that's transparent would be like a, a really clean piece of glass that, um, that, that you hardly see. So you have sometimes that funny scene in the, the slapstick comedy in the movies where somebody walks through, you know, walks right up to a sheet of of a big window and they just bump into it because they don't see it there. That's completely transparent. And a translucent object would be like a piece of um, frosted glass, you know, or like a a crystal, you know, like a rose quartz crystal or something. It has shape. It has color. Um, It allows light to pass through it, but it retains its own identity. And that's really what I mean by a translucent person. They, They have become a transmitter of light. They allow light to pass through them, but they still have an individual identity. And I think really I I came up with this word because um, what I saw was, you know, that people had this big distinction 
between what they call the ego. You know, and the ego is usually very much judged in uh, so-called spiritual circles. You know, you've got to get rid of the ego. Oh, he's in his ego. You know, the ego is a bad thing. And then the opposite end of the spectrum is this state that we, we revere called enlightenment, which in my opinion is something of a myth. I'm not sure that enlightenment is actually a real thing. It's a, I think it's rather an aspiration to avoid being human. So what I mean by translucent is that you can still have your desires and fears and your individual quirks, but you have come to a deep enough recognition of the dimension of yourself that is limitless and free that you could say light can now pass through you. You appear to glow from within. And I'm sure most of the people we know are translucent. The other interesting thing, Tammy, about the word translucent is it's not an absolute word. You know? Now, enlightenment is an absolute word. People use enlightenment generally to say somebody is enlightened or they're not. They don't say that somebody is, you know, well, quite enlightened on Tuesdays and really unenlightened on Thursdays. And Enlightenment is usually used in a, as an absolute word like dead or married or pregnant. Those are not kind of percentage words. I'm using translucent as a relative word like interesting or um, adorable. You know, these are words that you could... People are sometimes, some people are, or nice, you know, he's, he's he, he was really nice on Tuesday, but he wasn't so nice on Thursday, you know, that's a, or he's, he's, he's really nice when he's playing the guitar, but he's not so nice when he's uh, teaching uh, basketball. So I use translucent, first of all, it's a relative word, you can be more translucent in some areas of your life than in others, you can be more translucent in certain days than others, it's a word to communicate the degree to which a universal infinite dimension of light is able to transmit through you through the medium of your personal identity. Now, I, I want to get to this idea of translucent spiritual practice in, in just a moment, but you've said something, I think, very uh, intriguing, and you've kind of thrown the gauntlet down here that enlightenment is a myth. And in saying that, are you saying that in your work, the work that you did to write the book, The Translucent Revolution, including your own uh, personal relationship with uh, the teacher you studied with off and on for seven years, Punjaji, that you, you haven't met people that you would claim are quote-unquote enlightened or using this idea of transparency, fully transparent, that everybody is translucent? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would say that, yeah. I mean, that's just my opinion, but I feel... I mean, actually, Punjaji was of the same opinion. Uh, my teacher, Punjaji, he, he used to, people used to ask him, what is enlightenment? Because they thought he was a teacher of enlightenment. They would say, what is enlightenment? He would say, enlightenment is a word in the vocabulary of those who are asleep. Very interesting statement, you know, because basically, I mean, the word enlightenment, and I think it is actually, Tammy, this is not just semantics. This is a really, really, really important conversation. In, in my opinion, a really, it's a cutting-edge quantum leap conversation. Because who uses the word enlightenment? You know, who, who talks about enlightenment? One group of people who talk about enlightenment are spiritual aspirants, or aspirants, however you pronounce it, who have a teacher, and they want to say, you know, I, I am on a path working towards enlightenment. I'm on the path. People don't say this so much anymore. They used to. I'm a seeker on a path. Where is the path going? To enlightenment, right? So what does that do to your life? What does that do to your relationships, to your sexuality, to your capacity to give your gift? If your life is about trying to get to a future state that you're not in now, 
as far as I can see, making your life about a future state better than this one is going to kill your capacity to really enjoy and relish this present moment. So that's one group of people who talk about enlightenment. The other group of people who talk about enlightenment are those who claim to be enlightened. And that historically, of course, has been very often oriental gentlemen. It's been much more prevalent used by men than by women. And, you know, you've seen what happens. You get a, you get a very often an Indian man, but it's happened sometimes with Western people now too. I am enlightened. You must follow me and follow what I, instruction I give you, and you can become enlightened also. And then you discover the same gentleman who's saying this, you know, is having sex with teenagers or, you know, amassing a Swiss bank account or doing something weird. Because it's always the inevitable result, in my opinion, of trying to repress or hide your human side. If you try to present yourself as perfect, you're always going to build up a shadow. So, in my opinion, the willingness to drop the idea of enlightenment and to actually be willing to be present with what is now in its embarrassing humanness and its divine quality at the same time, in my opinion, is an enormous quantum leap in maturity for human beings. It's a quantum leap from, I would say, from spiritual immaturity to maturity. The, the tendency to want to be in a higher state and to project that higher state onto other people, in my opinion, is actually keeps us somewhat immature. And the willingness to step into your own presence now and accept your own shadow side and the willingness to see another human being as also an emanation of light but also having shadow that to me is a much more mature relationship because now we can see that everybody is schmucks and everybody is divine at the same time we don't need to make a hierarchy out of it you know and so just in the world that i live in you know that's actually a lot better place to have fun and it means that for example you know, in my case, I can meet my wife. I can meet my beloved wife and realize she is the divine goddess. She is the, the, uh, the divine mother. She is, you know, everything beautiful. And she's got this controlling, anti-independent Norwegian personality at the same time. And they're both there. And I can worship the divine emanation that comes through her. And I can laugh with her about the quirks of the personality, and it's all good, you know? So um, I've been through this dance a lot in my life. I have, I have prostrated myself at many, many gurus and then felt foolish afterwards, and I hope, touch wood, I'm kind of done with it now, that I'm really standing very strong in the recognition now that we are all all of it. You know, we are all divine, and we all have shadow. And um, what I look for in a human being is not that they embody a superior state. What I look for in a human being is that they are completely honest and transparent about their inadequacies and weaknesses in a human being. That's what I trust. That's what I worship, is that kind of honesty. Now, Arjuna, as you're, as you're speaking, it sounds to me that you yourself have made a journey in your life, we could say, towards this place of spiritual maturity, from mm -hmm. perhaps holding enlightenment and enlightened people up in, in some kind of way. Would you, would you say that's true? Could you tell us a little bit about what maybe some of the turning points were for you that you've come to this perspective that you now have about being translucent with a shadow? Yeah, well, with my head 
hung in embarrassment, Tammy. I will admit to the fact that I have done this a lot. You know, I have, I've looked for people to put above me. And, um, and of course, as the, as the personality works, if you look for people to put above you, then inevitably it's, in, it's, it's unavoidable that you're going to then look for people also to put below you. It's just how, how the personality works. I think for me, Tammy, you know, um, I've been a spiritual, I've, I've been acting as a spiritual teacher for a long time. But the truth is, you know, that all of that was never really fueled by, um, I mean, when I was a teenager, I got started. It wasn't like as a teenager, I thought, oh, what do I want to do with my life? I want to be a spiritual teacher. That, that was never the case. What was true for me was, I experienced a, a really an unbearable level of suffering, a really unbearable, you know. I mean, my, there was quite a bit of mental illness and suicide in my family. Uh, I grew up in London, you know, very um, unhappy and uh, kind of dysfunctional people who I was born into. And in a way, that can be a horrible thing, you know, to be born into a, into a very unhappy family. But at the same time, it can be a great blessing because it gives you the impetus to find something deeper in yourself. So when I was 14, I started to experience really deep depression and, and anxiety and fear and stuff. And, and I realized, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've, inherited, I've inherited a kind of um, broken personality habits. And so I, and I looked around, what am I going to do? You know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go nuts. So I don't want to kill myself as a teenager. So what am I going to do? And one alternative at that time in the early 70s was psychotherapy. But, you know, if you got to know psychotherapists a little bit in the 70s, you realize they were more mixed up than the people they were trying to help. So then I discovered meditation, and it, that looked to me like a good option. Like, whoa, you can, if you meditate, you can discover this dimension of yourself which is free. So let me try that. So at 14, I learned transcendental meditation and then moved on later to other teachers and other practices. But it was always fueled by a way to deal with suffering. It was a way to deal with the really unbearably difficult aspects of, of, of psychological suffering. And I, I want to be honest about that because that's, to this day, that is really what is, for me, what has fueled my spiritual life. You know, it's, it's, it's been, it's a way to, it's a way to cope with the personality. I just happen to have a personality that's particularly dysfunctional. So <laughs> my impetus to deal with it was stronger than other people. But, you know, um, I think it's, for me, it's really important that we can meet in this. We can meet in our honesty about the difficulties of, of being human and our compassion for other people's difficulty in being human. And then spiritual practice becomes one particularly effective way to find another dimension that's not the personality. And I've completely forgotten what the question was you asked now. The question had to do with your own emerging into this view that you're calling more uh, spiritually mature, which is giving up on there being enlightened people, basically. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. Well, you know, when I was 14, I projected onto a teacher then, who actually was a you know, sweet man, but, you know, I realized after some time that he was, you know, he had failings too. And then I found another teacher. So all the time, I think really, like many, many people of my generation, I mean, I wasn't the only person who did this, um, the the difficulty that we experienced with our own condition uh, led us to want to project onto something better or different in another, some kind of a, 
a model or some kind of a, a an image of um, of perfection. And um, so I went on doing that. But of course, the, in that theater, if you project onto a teacher as being somehow perfect or better than you are, you're taking a role in that theater of someone who is lesser than, you know. So if you project up onto the one at the front, you're going to, you're going to, you become then the seeker or the supplicant. So if you project onto the other as the source of everything, you're actually, in the same way, you're denying your own presence as that same source. I mean, that's the, the, that's the standard way we get into it. And that's what causes a lot of difficulty in guru disciple relationships or teacher-student relationships is if you want to say that the teacher is higher, higher means there must be a lower, and then you put yourself in the lower position. The difficulty with that is you cut yourself off then from discovering that dimension yourself. And ironically, ironically, I've discovered this from interviewing so many people for the Translucent Revolution, ironically, most of the people I meet who are experiencing some degree of freedom they discovered this degree of freedom when they left their teacher. It's a kind of weird thing that they may have gotten great benefit from the teacher, but the actual way, the explosion of freedom came when they left. I'm thinking, for example, there's a gazillion examples of this, but one example is Samuel Bonda, who's written some really good books, a really great teacher, who was for many years a student of Adida. Adida is gone by many names, Baba Free John, Da Free John, many names. Adida was very much a kind of uh, higher than, lower than teacher. That was, his, that was his style. I think he even claimed to be, you know, in, in a higher state of enlightenment than anybody else has been in. And so Samuel Bonda sat with great reverence and devotion and respect at the feet of Adida for, I think, maybe 20, 30 years. But it was when he finally left as a rebel that he almost immediately experienced his own sense of freedom. And there's, I can can find hundreds of stories like that, including my own, that it's when you actually leave the hierarchical environment that you discover freedom. So maybe that hierarchical environment was a good, um, was a good fertile soil for that sprouting eventually to happen. But nevertheless, sooner or later, I think we have to step into a world where we can see divinity everywhere and where we no longer operate hierarchically, where we no longer see people as more enlightened and less enlightened, where you actually experience oneness. And that's, of course, you know, that's where all the goodies are. That's where things get delicious. And that's where you experience love in so many ways. Now, Arjuna, you said, including your own story, you sort of tossed that off. What did you mean by that in your own life, this experience of separating? Well, I, you know, as I said, I did that when I was 14. I did it with another teacher. Um, with Punjaji, it was a little more difficult to do that because he threw you back onto yourself so much. So with Punjaji, he really insisted, you know, he insisted that you, um, that you discover that in yourself. He really was genuinely not interested in being um, a projection screen. Um, but I think this really has blossomed for me more than anything in my marriage, you know, um, because... Uh, there came a point, you know, if, if you were asking about my own story, I think one of the most pivotal moments in my own story was in, nine, it was in 2002, in February. I was sitting on my, on my deck, so it's like 9 
bit more than nine years ago, I was sitting on my deck. I was 44 years old, sitting on my deck. And I just finished, I'd just broken up another relationship. I was married for many years and was divorced. And then I'd, you know, I would have these kind of one-year relationships. And I'd just broken up another relationship. Uh, and there I was traveling the world quite successfully as a spiritual teacher. And I was able to conduct, you know, large events, you know, more than a thousand people sometimes, really guiding everybody into this sort of great big love, but not able to sustain it in my own intimate relationships. Oh my God, you know, what an incredible hypocrisy, really, that you, you can guide people into a big impersonal love, but you can't actually get along with the person you're having sex with. You know, it's kind of crazy. So I sat on the deck one night after having finished a relationship. My kids were with my ex-wife. And I, I kind of looked up into the sky and I realized, you know, if I die one day, Tammy, if I die one day and realize I never truly loved, if I die one day and realize that I never truly loved another human being, that would actually be a wasted life. That would actually be a life lived. That would be a failed life for me. If I die one day not having achieved the perfect peaks of enlightenment, I would be totally okay with that. But if I die not having loved fully, that would be a broken life. And then that was a pivotal moment, you know. That was a pivotal moment where I realized I had been enthusiastically climbing a ladder for the previous 30 years, a ladder of spiritual attainment, and my ladder was leaning up against the wrong wall. You know, I was climbing a ladder towards enlightenment and when I actually sat on the deck and looked up in the stars and kind of felt this openness, I realized enlightenment is not really that important to me. Loving deeply is much more important, but I'm so terrified of it that I can't make my life about that. So three weeks later, having realized this, three weeks later I met a woman who had come to the same kind of realization. She'd also explored spiritual practice. And she also had realized that love was a more important value than anything else. So we embarked upon a journey together. We, we didn't get together right away as a couple. We just became kind of friends or acquaintances for a while. And then we actually got together after a few months. And we realized that our personalities were not actually predisposed towards loving relationship. You know, our personalities, both of us were quite broken because we came from these families that where that was the inheritance so we made a decision together to practice we made a decision to practice in relationship in such a way to live this deeper dimension of love and that's what we've been doing now for nine years and it's taken it's taken tremendous depth of practice it's taken tremendous dedication to learn how to meet from a dimension that is not the personality but at the same time, allowing the personality room to play. So I think in terms of my own, you know, my own uh, trajectory of unfolding, as you asked it, it was that moment that was most crucial, was realizing that everything we have looked for with gurus, you can actually have that with the person you're in relationship with if you're willing to dedicate your relationship to something deeper than what is habitual. 
Okay, now I want to talk about this overarching theme, and then we can get into how to do translucent spiritual practice in intimate relationships, as you're pointing to here, which is in your book, Leap Before You Look, 72 Shortcuts for Getting Out of Your Mind and Into the Moment. You talk about this idea of translucent spiritual practice as being spiritual practice where we recognize both the perfection of the moment and endless possibilities for improving our life. And I think this is, is very interesting, just like you've introduced this word being translucent versus being 100% holy, enlightened, and transparent, this idea that our spiritual practice could be translucent. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how we hold the paradox of being and becoming in our practice. Well, I think you just said it pretty well. (laughs) You know, the thing about paradoxes is you can't reconcile them in your thinking. You can only reconcile them in your living, you know. So, um, I mean, the, the, one of the most famous paradoxes is the paradox of freedom of will, uh, freedom of choice, and pre, predestiny, you know. I mean, there's an intellectual, powerful intellectual argument for both, that we have, you can see, logically, we do have free will, and you can see logically that things seem to unfold on their own, and you can't reconcile that intellectually. You can only reconcile that by just living your life, and you realize both are there. So in the same way, in the same way, it's not logically consistent that things are exactly perfect in this moment and there is endless room for self-improvement. Those are contradictory statements. But actually, our life, when you just live your life, you realize that both are true. You know That in this moment, I'm standing now in my office looking out at the forest and the light is kind of shining down on the trees so that there's all like a million different shades and brightnesses of green and it's incredibly beautiful in this moment outside of thought it could not get better than this and <laughs> you just have to move a little bit and interact with people and you realize that there's always ways to become more loving more conscious more receptive more tender more respectful so both are simultaneously true and you live it you know you live it but i think Here's the thing about that paradox, is if you fall into either side of the paradox, you lose, you fall from grace, you know. So if you fall into the world of self-improvement, I think we talk about this a bit in the introduction to Leap Before You Look. If you fall into addiction to self-improvement, then you never really enjoy this moment because you're always trying to fix yourself. And we know what that's like in relationship, you know, if a relationship becomes about processing and self-improvement, you never actually enjoy the person as they are because you're always thinking about how to fix the other person, how to fix yourself. On the other hand, you can fall the other side into the delusion of everything's perfect. When that, I would say, is the delusion of enlightenment, which, uh, which is very common in kind of Advaita, non-dual you know, circles. This idea, well, there's nobody here, there's nothing to fix well, how come your life looks so broken then? <laughs> you know, how come you've got you know, relationships that don't work and you can't pay the rent if everything's perfect as it is? You know, it's, it's not true, you see. It's just not true. So it's somehow, in a paradoxical way, both are true. Things are perfect as they are. And any moment you can drop into, the, into now and feel the perfection of it, and you are also in a dance that is evolutionary. 
And if and when you actually are willing to also be in the evolutionary dance, you can see there's endless things to fix and improve and work on as an art form. But it has no end. You know, it, it's not that you're working on yourself so you're going to finally arrive. You're working on yourself just as you might work on painting. And you can constantly paint a better picture. You can constantly, if you make music, you can constantly make more beautiful music. You're in, a, you're in an endless process of upgrading that really has no final point of arrival. You live these together. You live, you live the spectrum between these two. And that's what I mean by translucent practice. You're not practicing for a better tomorrow. You're practicing for a more generous now. You're practicing to give your gift more fully in this moment now. Now, Arjuna, I could certainly see falling into the side of the equation where we're constantly trying to improve our lives and we, we miss the moment. Now, you talked, though, about the person who experiences the perfection of this moment, moment after moment, as that being diluted. Don't, don't you think it's possible somebody could feel th- this moment and the next moment there is this, uh, they're not diluted, they're, they're in touch with that? Well, yeah, to fall into the perfection of this moment is, um, that's what I mean by translucent practice, but it's always this moment, this moment, this moment. But you see what can happen, what, what frequently does happen for, um, for, people in, for, for, for people who get interested in this is then they want to say, well, everything, therefore, everything is perfect. Because, I've had, because I can access this dimension moment by moment by moment where it's full and wonderful and shining, therefore, there is nothing wrong anywhere. And that's, that's where... I would say we get to be a little deluded because if you look at the world and you say, well, the relationship between you know, Palestine and Israel is perfect and there's nothing needs to be changed, or you look at you know, the state of the healthcare system in the United States and the fact that people you know, don't go to the doctor when they have cancer because they're afraid that they don't have any money and that's somehow perfect. When, and if you look at the in, incredible economic imbalance in this country, where now I don't know it's it's, it's worse than it's ever been. You know the, that um, a tiny percentage of people control an enormous uh, percentage of wealth. I mean, you can say if you like that all that's perfect, but in my opinion, I just I can maybe it's just the simplest thing is to say I don't find that very interesting when if, when when someone becomes obliged to say that everything's perfect or. Let's bring it down home, you know, let's bring it down home where maybe um, in your own relationship, you know, you, you're with your beloved and you know that your beloved, in your heart of hearts, you know that your beloved is bored and is not feeling totally adored. But you get caught in an idea, everything's perfect, everything's perfect. So you lose interest, you lose the edge to find out how could I adore my beloved more? How could I bring more freshness and newness to the situation. Or maybe you have children, and somehow you know in your heart that you're not connecting fully with your children. Somehow you know that there's a distance between They've gone off into their own, own world, and you've lost touch with what really is of interest to them. But everything's perfect, so we don't attend to it. That's what I mean. And that is, Tammy, that is a very, very common spiritual ailment among a certain kind of spiritual philosophy, which is quite prevalent, it's a common ailment to want to say, because I have tasted a dimension of myself which is free, 
And because I have tasted life outside the mind, therefore any idea of anything needing to be worked on is delusional. That's, I think, a, you know, a very important trap for us all to be aware of. And the way to resolve that trap, as we've discussed, is not to go the other way and say everything needs to be improved all the time, but to be willing to live the paradox, to be willing to live the paradox where you can feel the perfection of this moment, and at the same time you have the humility and the honesty and the sobriety to realize that there's a million things we can do to be of service, a million things we can do to make this world a more joyful place. And there's a million injustices we can bring our attention to to resolve. And there's a million things that we're doing in our own lives which are unconscious and unkind. And all of those things can be worked upon but without the losing touch with that dimension where everything is sweet. So it's, it's the both together. You know, both together, that to me makes a beautiful human being. Hallelujah. I'm 100% with you right there. Mm. Okay. So moving right into it in the world of intimate relationships, where I think most of us know that there's more we could be doing in addition to being in the present moment with the beauty and perfection of our love in any moment. There's more we can do. You share some interesting practices in Leap Before You Look, and I want to uh, throw a couple of them out and have you talk about how we might actually do this in real life, on the ground. So right. one of the practices that you offer uh, that I personally found quite challenging is welcoming criticism in our ah, relationships. Yeah. How might we do this? Well, good. So, um, you know, what I notice is ha happens for many couples or for many spiritual people is um, they are in relationship with their beloved. Uh, this happens actually interestingly i don't know why but it happens more for heterosexual men in relationship with heterosexual women you know so a man with a woman this pattern is very common that the man um experiences his wife to be nagging right so she's she's telling him you know why don't you focus more on your on your real gifts why don't you like you know, clean your act up and, 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 and look more, more beautiful in the way you dress. So, and he blocks her off because she's nagging and then goes to a spiritual teacher or a men's group or something and gets exactly the, in order to get exactly the same advice, right? So do you follow, follow what I'm saying? I'm, I'm with you. This lesbian woman is tracking with you perfectly. Okay, well, I, I just wasn't... I, I know that it's a, it's, a common, it's a common dynamic between the masculine and the feminine. I wasn't really sure how it would play out um, between two women or two men, or even how it would play out the other way. But it's, it's, I, it, that's the most common scenario where we find it. So, um, so what, one of the practices that can be really beautiful is, you know, if you're looking for a teacher, right, if you're looking for somebody to help you overcome limitation, why would you want to look beyond the one who most cares for you, who has most investment in your gifts coming forth? Now, my wife, Shamily, she is a, a Viking woman. She's from Norway. Her parents are from Denmark, you know, so she's a, these, are, these are Viking roots, you know. And she's not a, she's not a kind of a cushy, cushy kind of a wife. You know, she'll get ferocious if she needs to. Um, and most of the advice she gives me is really good advice. You know, most of the things she quotes nags me about are really things that it would it would behove me to pay attention to, right? So, um, 
But, of course, like many other men, I recoil against it coming from her. So I've noticed as a practice, you know, when she, is, when she appears to be nagging, what I do as a practice, I take a breath and I open myself and I say, I look, I consciously and deliberately look for the truth in what she's saying. And I find the place where she's right, where her calling forth of deeper gifts is accurate and true and right. And I'll look for that and I'll connect with that and I'll say, thank you. Yes, you're right. I, I, you are absolutely right. And, but then there's a time limit, you see. If she then, if she keeps nagging for, five, for more than five minutes, I'll say, hey, I heard you five minutes ago. What you said is correct. I'm going to work on it and I'm going to attend to it. And let's even look at practical ways that I can attend to it. But please now don't beat me up because I have got the point of what you're saying. So that's an important piece too. But this is, and this can happen, obviously, you know, this can happen in other, other scenarios too. It can happen a woman taking criticism from a man. So it's not quite exactly the same dynamic because of the nature of the masculine and feminine psyche. But it could take place between two women and two men as well. But this is one beautiful practice where you can find the kind of evolutionary tension that you look for with a teacher. You can find that with the one who actually cares about you the most which is the person you're having sex with and sharing a bed with. Now, Arjuna, what is happening internally when you're being criticized and you see yourself starting to perhaps feel agitated and going into some kind of defensive mode and then you welcome, quote-unquote, welcome criticism? What are you doing inside? Um, it's what we call, in our, in our deeper love work, we call that sitting back in the saddle. Right, so you you can imagine, you know, if you're riding a horse, you sit back in the saddle. It's like ah, you know, you you notice when you're being criticised. There's usually a defensive um, uh, trigger uh, comes into play. There's a kind of a there's a sort of a yeah, a defensive mechanism gets enlivened. So you notice that you take a breath and you consciously sit back in the saddle. You relax back into the saddle and yeah, and just that willingness, it, it requires a commitment. It requires a decision in advance. But that commitment to sit back in the saddle and receive, um, you, you suddenly find that what was unpleasant becomes actually helpful. And you realize, well, this is somebody who loves me and cares about me and wants to help me. It's not somebody who's actually trying to cause me any harm. But, I mean, this act of sitting back in the saddle you know, I, I wonder, do people need some kind of additional training to be able to do that right in the moment where they're being criticized? Yeah, and um, we actually have developed, we've been teaching this work for a long time, um, the, deep, the deeper love work. We've been teaching it in, you know, in workshops around the world. And more recently, we, um, we made it into a course people can do at home. And it's not, you can't really, I, I don't think you can really take these practices in isolation. They, 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 need, to be, they need to be practiced in a, in a kind of coherent um, integration. So one of the foundational practices is, has to do with commitment. And that means we, we divide commitment into four, uh, four, four kind of phases. And this is actually a ritual that we recommend people do with each other in relationship, or you can do it on your own if you're single. 
So the first phase of commitment is um, we would call uh, is the question, why am I alive? Right? That's the first phase of commitment. Why am I alive? Why am I here on the planet? And we recommend people to take anywhere between an hour and a whole day to just sit with that question. Why am I alive? You know, what's, human birth is quite inconvenient and, and, and can be painful, so why am I alive? And the second phase of, um, of this commitment process is what gets in the way, to recognize the habits that block why I'm alive, the habits that arise that actually interfere with my purpose for being here. And the third question is, where can you count on me? And those are basically the gentle disciplines that we have already integrated into our lives, which are pretty stable. So for some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's you know, daily exercise. For some people, it's practicing honesty. We all of us have found, um, we've found, we've developed habits that we can now be relied upon that actually amplify our gifts. And the fourth question is, where do I need support? And that's where it becomes relational. Where do I need support from the outside in order to live my gifts more deeply? So those are the four phases of commitment. And um, so we, uh, we work with those. And um, there's other foundational practices. So there's one that we teach called here nowing, which is a practice to... It's a practice to cultivate the capacity to tell the truth about the present moment, to tell the truth about what you're hearing and feeling and seeing and touching and tasting in this moment without going into stories, and at the same time, the capacity to, uh, to amplify true listening, to practice listening like the sky, you know, listening without an agenda. So these are also... Um, no, no, explain a little more. How do I do this here nowing with my partner? Yeah, okay, good. So the way that you do here nowing, it's a practice you do only 10 minutes a day. And it's actually rather like homeopathic medicine. You know, you don't actually want to overdose. You want to really keep it limited and disciplined to just 10 minutes a day. So for the first five minutes, uh, you would stand in front. You stand facing each other. And um, you, let's say you would start. And you start giving a commentary on the present moment. So what are the things you could say in this moment? Like, I can, feel, I can feel a little tension in my belly. I can feel a tightness in my breath. Uh, and then you, maybe you have a thought. So you say, now I notice I'm having a thought about what we're going to have for dinner. And then you come back again, and I can feel my feet and the way they're touching the ground. And I'm looking in your eye, and I'm noticing your eye, and I'm having a thought that your eyes are beautiful. Now I'm noticing an itch and my shoulders wanting to move a little bit. So you just keep going for five minutes, just constantly describing and commenting on what is undeniably true in this moment, which could include physical sensations, things you see, things you hear, but also thoughts and judgments and memories are equally welcome. They're just labeled as that. And the other partner practices, and this is a deep practice, the other partner practices listening like the sky, which means they relax into themselves and they listen, consciously not preparing what to say next, consciously not judging or or, or reacting in any way, just like the sky, just listening 
and the and the words are just abs- just absorbed and dissolved into the empty sky. So this is this is here now. And after five minutes, you switch over. The other one speaks. There's no discussion afterwards. When you when you're done, you're done. You just walk away. And this has a kind of an alchemical effect. It takes about three to four weeks till it really kicks in fully. But after three to four weeks of practicing this regularly, you discover that the quality of just simple honesty about what's true in this moment becomes habitual. And what that means is that the practice you've been doing five minutes a day, it kind of creeps into the rest of your life. So... Now, just naturally and easily and spontaneously, there is a quality of simple honesty starting to bubble up. And in the same way, this quality of listening like the sky also creeps more and more into your day-to-day life. So both of these qualities develop. Uh, Honesty and open listening, they develop more and more over time, and they become foundations for the rest of um, living the deeper love. So all of the other practices you can work with, they rest in this foundation of simple honesty and simple listening. Try it out. You know, the here nowing, it only takes you 10 minutes a day and it is completely revolutionary. It's completely and totally irreversibly. We did it for years and it has completely changed everything about our lives. Now, it's, you know, it's interesting to me, Arjuna, your book, Leap Before You Look, talks about many different kinds of translucent spiritual practices that we can do in different parts of our life with family, with community, working with feelings, working with our body, working uh, with, the, with the breath itself. But yet in our conversation, you and I, I think based on our shared interest, have gone directly to the topic of intimate relationships because it, it, it seems like in terms of the shadow parts of our life, the, the places where we're most likely to be revealed as withholding or defended. It's it's in those intimate relationships where that will show up the, the most, wouldn't you say? Definitely, definitely. And that's actually, that's why it's so wise to bring your practice to intimate relationship because you'll, you'll find a lot more stuff to work with in intimate relationship than you ever would in a, in a teacher-student relationship. That's, that's why I've chosen to make Shamali my guru uh, because... You know, I, I get much more mileage out of having her as my teacher than I ever did from having somebody, you know, that I have less intimacy with. Now, now that's very interesting to call your partner your quote-unquote guru. What, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, guru, you know, the word guru, guru, it simply means um, uh, that which dispels darkness. I forget quite which which syllable is which. I think maybe... Uh, gu means darkness and ru means that which expels. I can't remember, but it just means that which dispels darkness, that which dispels ignorance, right? So, you know, a dog could be your guru if, if, if the dog helps to dispel ignorance. And of course, we've come to think of, you know, a guru must be, a, you know, a, an elderly Indian man, but it's not true at all. I've had many great gurus, you know. I had, um, I was very fortunate. I was close to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I was quite close to to uh, Osho, uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh. I, you know, I was close with Punjaji. I had a great Tibetan teacher, Urgen Tulka Rinpoche. But honestly, great as all those teachers have been, nobody has provided the degree of evolution and unconditional loving support than my wife. You know, but it it's not that you have to find the right 
partner, you have to find the right disposition. You have to find the right disposition within yourself that you can meet your partner in a spirit of surrender, in a spirit of openness and curiosity that maybe they can see you better than you can see yourself. And so for me, you know, I, I know the benefit of a, of, a, of a teacher. I know the benefit of having a guru. But um, for me, there's no better guru than your own marriage. There's no better guru than your own love life if you know how to treat it in the right way. See, it's all to do with disposition. It's all to do with getting clear of why you're here on the planet and what kind of support you need. And when you, when you do get clear about why you're here on the planet and what kind of support you need, then you realize there's nobody better qualified to offer you that support than your own intimate partner. Now, that, that's an interesting step, the support that you need. Tell, tell me what you mean by that. Well, um, you see... What interests me, really, when I because I, I work with clients, you know, and, and I, I do a, a, a form of coaching called awakening coaching. So I work with clients, and what I'm always interested to know about is what what is your what is your what is it that your kind of heart is longing for? What is it that your that your soul is longing for? Because people use the word enlightenment or freedom or something, but it's often a word they've been taught. So I want to know, in your own words. In your own language, what is it you most long for? And people usually have a way of explaining that. It might be I'm longing for, you know, I'm longing to really love. That was, you know, when I got clear for myself, I realized I was longing to really and deeply love. That was my most important value. And I feel now I've been able to do that. And I feel much more at peace. For some people, they long to, mm, to really create music that is sublime, you know. Somebody, maybe they really long to serve in another way. Somebody, maybe they really long for deep meditation. But I, I want to know, on your terms, if this is your dream, your movie, and there's nobody else in charge or directing the movie but you, what is it you most long for? That's what, I, that's what interests me. And from there, you see, everything falls in place around that. Now, when you realize what you're most longing for, you also realize that most people realize that they long for something, but they are also sabotaging at the same time. Almost everybody, they realize I long, like in my case, you know, when I sat under, under the stars, I longed to really give my love, and I was the one most sabotaging that at the same time, you see? Both were true. I longed to love, and nobody is preventing me from loving more than me. Or somebody else might say, I really long to be healthy, and they realize nobody's stopping me from being healthy except for me and my habits, right? So most of us, we realize I have longing, and the one who is most sabotaging the longing is me, yeah? And then we, that's when you realize I need support, you see? I need support in, uh, I need support in that. I need somebody to help bring forth my deepest longing. And that's, you see, that's the... Uh, that's where you, you, that's where you come to the, the possibility that maybe your partner, your intimate partner, is the one best qualified to offer you the support that you need. Mm-hmm. W- wonderful. Thank you. Now, there, there are so many different parts of Leap Before You Look that we could talk about, but the other section that I'd really like to spend a little bit of time on has mm-hmm. to do with working with our feelings, um, specifically there's uh, two sections of the book that I'm interested in hearing you talk about. 
One is how we can enter fear, and then mm-hmm. the other is a, a teaching that you give on what it might mean to explode with anger. So entering yeah. fear and exploding with anger, I wonder if you could talk about both of these. Okay, well, let's start with the fear, you know. Um, generally speaking, the, the best way to ask for me, for me to explain how I understand fear, the best way to, uh, to talk about this is, um, is the story of, uh, it's an old story, of a man who is walking by a cliff. And uh, he walks by the cliff. It's in darkness. There's no moon. It's at the night time. And he falls, he falls from the cliff and he reaches out and he grabs a branch as he's falling. So now he's holding from the branch and he can hear the waves crashing on the, on the um, rocks below. And he knows if he just lets go, um, he's going to fall to his death, you see. And so he just closes his eyes in terror and just hangs on the whole night. And when the dawn comes, he looks down, and literally six inches below his feet is a ledge. If he had just let go of the branch, he would have fallen six inches to the ledge and rested a good night's sleep and then figured out what to do in the morning. And it's a lovely story for me that illustrates our relationship to fear, you know, that we, we hang on avoiding something where if we just relaxed into it, it would be fine, you know. So we fear, think of the things we fear, you know. We fear that our lover will leave us. And sometimes it's when your lover leaves you that your heart most, heart most opens and you realize it's fine and you find somebody that loves you even more. Or we fear losing all our money. And actually, when people do lose all their money, sometimes they found that, find that it was the money that had the most trapped, you know. Or sometimes we fear all kinds of things, and ultimately we fear death. Uh, but people who die say that it's actually... <laughs> people who die and come back say that it was actually the greatest joyride they ever experienced, you know, that it was actually just light and, and all good things. So I think that's the thing about fear. You know, when you notice you're really fearing something, is to, at least, at least within yourself, to allow yourself to enter what you have most avoided to allow yourself to walk towards within your psyche that which has most um freaked you out and there's that's where there's freedom you know if you can actually embrace what you've been afraid of that's where there's freedom but but what does that mean enter the fear what what do you mean well um you know i i think there are really two ways you can enter fear um one is to when you one is to embrace the frequency that you've most avoided within yourself and the other is to actually embrace the situation and what I would say is if you're willing to embrace the frequency you don't need to embrace the situation so let's take losing all your money right ultimately you know somebody's got a lot of money and somebody's got no money um, really what they I mean within limits well actually the difference is a printout on a bank statement right so it's it's uh you know, somebody who's got millions in the bank or somebody who's got 2,000 in the bank, the difference between them is what their bank statement says. The rest is all to do with what that means, you see. So 
So that's the, if you have a lot of fear of losing money, there are really two ways you're going to resolve that fear. One way is, is to close your eyes and to feel that the fear of losing money is tied to an energy, a frequency in your body. It's like an emotional frequency of, of, of lack, of not enough. And that has a kind of, a, like, a, like a piece of music, it has a vibration to it, right? So if you can actually enter into the frequency, um, you become free of it without having to play out the drama in your life. And so that's one way of getting free of fear, is to enter into the frequency that is most that you have most not wanted to feel. If you're not, I would say, if you're not willing to enter the frequency, then life will arrange for you to enter the situation. So um, let's say you're very afraid of being abandoned, being abandoned by somebody close to you. If you're willing to enter the frequency and feel what abandonment's like and really make friends with it, then your beloved doesn't need to leave you. If you just are run by this fear of abandonment and you're not willing to feel it, sooner or later someone's going to leave you because that's how life is set up, that you, you get to feel the things you've avoided whether you like it or not. So entering the frequency means that that frequency is alive in your body and you actually feel it, you sit with it, you're with it, you stay, you stay with it for a period of time. Well, actually the technique we teach is a bit more than that. We teach people to actually amplify it. Um, because what I've noticed is if you try and be with something or watch something, there is very often a residual feeling of still avoiding it. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be with this in brackets so that it will go away, you know? So what we teach people to do is not just to be with it, but to actually consciously build it up without a story. That's the important thing, to build it up without a story, to make it stronger and stronger and stronger without any story attached, and um, so that uh, you, you actually start to celebrate it. So, you know, the, the, the frequency of abandonment, you build it up so much that it becomes almost like a sexual feeling. It's like an, an energy increasing in your body. You build it up to the point that you can't build it up anymore. And the, what we've discovered is in, in any moment when you build something up completely, you can't in that same moment resist it. You can't build something and resist at the same time. So when you're completely building a frequency, in that moment, you're not resisting it. And then you discover freedom. So that's, that's a kind of a take on fear. And what I would, what I would say is whatever frequencies are there in your, in your psyche that you, don't, you absolutely don't want to experience or you don't want to build up, those are the frequencies that will run your life. Those are the frequencies that you will be forced to visit whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And then briefly, if you'll tell us how that would uh, apply to anger, let's say as a frequency that somebody might want to avoid, but here we're going to take a different approach. Got it. So um, if you really have an unfriendly relationship to anger, generally speaking, people have an unfriendly relationship to their own anger, right? They don't like to feel angry. But when you don't like to feel angry, you develop a story, usually you develop a story you tell yourself where you say, I'm not angry. I don't have anger. The rest of the world is angry. And so consequently, you kind of see, you keep seeing, meeting angry people. And so actually what you experience is anger is coming towards me and it's very threatening and horrible and I don't like it, you see. Uh, So um, 
what we tend to do, especially this is a very common thing among you know, what you might call spiritual new age personality, what we tend to do then is we, we develop a kind of love and peace attitude. You know, the anger is bad, nobody should get angry, and you know, it's bad energy, and uh, um, uh, the, 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 the right way to live is everyone loves everybody and hugs everybody. And so if anybody gets angry, you know, we, we judge it as, 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 as very, very bad. And um, that actually, over time, that creates a tremendous weakness, not only because you end up avoiding people who get angry, but more important, it builds up a weakness because you, um, you, you cut off the anger in yourself. You have an unfriendly relationship to your own anger, which means you also cut off your own power. You know, that's, uh, that's uh, a really the, the, the biggest loss of judging anger is you lose connection with your own power, your own capacity to break through limits, to make a difference, to really, you know, to be powerful and amazing in life. So um, the the way that we would recommend to work with this is to you would and really the the the, le- the let yourself go is has lots of examples of this. Is you would evoke a memory of anger. Either in yourself, you can, sometimes it can start with anger from another person, but you can quickly kind of evoke it in yourself. And then instead of pushing it down, you actually find a way to enjoy it. And anger is a great example you gave, Tammy, because anger, I've discovered in my own life and working with clients, that anger is one of the most pleasurable energies to run through your body if you know how to celebrate it. Anger can be as much fun and as much excitement as sex. You know, anger is really a very cool, yummy thing to be experiencing. Uh, but uh, you've, you've, you've got to actually uh, recognize and unplug the idea that anger is wrong. Now, there are actually two energies, you know, socially, politically, there are two energies which, which traditionally have been repressed by religion and politicians. Uh, one is anger, and the other is sex, right? So, there is, so if you're walking down the street and you behave in a way that's really angry and, uh, and aggressive, somebody's going to call the police and you'll get taken to jail because it's not okay to be, ang- to be really strongly angry in public. Everyone gets shocked. The other feeling that is not allowed socially is, is sexual arousal. You're not, you're not allowed to walk around feeling sexy aroused or showing signs of sexual arousal. It's okay in public to cry. If you, if you sit down in a public place and cry, people will come close and say, oh, are you okay? What can I do for you? Right? It's okay in a public place to, to well, it's somewhat okay to kind of laugh or to um, be, be, be kind or loving, but sex, the expression of sexuality and anger are not allowed socially because you cannot control a population who is angry or horny. Right? You cannot have organized religion if the if the um, congregation is angry or horny. You've got people who are going to start claiming their own power if they're angry or horny. And in the same way, politicians can't organize society into a hierarchy of, um, of an economic hierarchy where some people have more than others if the population is angry or horny. You have a population who's angry or horny, you've got a social revolution on your hands. So this is just a little side note, you know, that we have been conditioned to believe that anger is not okay. From very childhood, from kindergarten, if you, if you get angry in kindergarten, you're sent to the corner, right? 
if you express sexual feelings in kindergarten, your, your parents will get called. If you cry in kindergarten, the teacher will come and help you. So this is very deeply ingrained in us. But here's the amazing thing, that if you enter into anger, not with a story, if you enter into anger just as an energy, just as a kind of like, I don't want to do that too loud because you know, of the microphone, but if you really find that deep growl in your body and just really play with it, actually, it gives you a tremendous feeling of freedom, it wakes up power, and it can become as pleasurable as an orgasm. In fact, it's hard to know whether the, the unrepressed flow of anger through the body or, or sexual feelings, it's hard to know which to choose. They're both so alive and yummy. Now, Arjuna, obviously you, you have some uh, fabulous experience here working with anger. So I just I want to make sure I understand. Here I am, I'm amplifying it somatically in my body. I'm feeling it more and more. And, and then what happens? I, 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 it's, it's growing in me. What there's like an explosion or something? Uh, okay. No, you take, you take, you basically, well, what, first thing is, uh, you know, if, you, if you're interested or if you or anybody's interested in the particular method I'm teaching, it would be good to listen to, um, uh, that, you know, to listen to an example on uh, Let Yourself Go. And maybe we can even, I don't know, perhaps we can uh, make that available somehow along with this recording or something. So, um, but it's a particular technique we use that takes less than five minutes. We call it radical releasing. And it's usually done with another person. So it's usually like the, a coach will guide the um, a coach will guide the um, the client into this process of building, 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 building until you can't build anymore. And then you actually it falls back and you relax into the question: Who is experiencing this moment? So you build the energy, build it, build it, build it till you can't get any more. Usually you do it with a sentence. So the sentence for anger might be, you know. Uh, it's probably going to be something that would have to be deleted from a recording, but it would be, you know, the sentence could be for anger. It could be like, you know, just uh, leave me alone. Okay. So you can leave me alone. Leave me alone. You can build it and build it and build it and build it and build it until it cannot be built anymore, until you're completely overwhelmed just with this frequency. And then the coach will say, now, now just when it's at the absolute maximum, the coach will say, now just let go. That building only takes place for about two minutes. Now just let go. Just drop back into the question, who am I? Who is here? Who is present? Who is aware? Who am I? You drop back into this question, who am I? And then from there, you just check the body. You check the place in the body where you were feeling the anger. And usually you'll find there's just a spaciousness or a presence. It's best to listen to an example on the recording of this. Just notice there's a presence and openness and then you check the statement again leave me alone and it doesn't have any charge you check the opposite come close to me also doesn't have any charge and then you go back to the situation you realize the situation doesn't have any charge you see so what you've what you've done you haven't you haven't made anger go away you've taken the resistance off anger so that anger and its opposite are equally welcome and this is for us in the approach that we have called awakening coaching, this is what we would call freedom. Freedom is not that you've transformed all your negative feelings into positive feelings. Freedom means that you don't have that distinction anymore between negative and positive feelings. Everything is equally welcome. You, there's a place for anger. There's a place for grief. There's a place for suicidal despair. There's a place for wanting to make, have sex with everything. There's a place for kindness. There's a place for compassion. 
there's a place for outrage. It's all welcome. It's all good. Everything, it's all good. There's no such thing as negative and positive energy. There is only repressed or welcomed energy. And whatever we transform from the repressed to the welcome, we have more freedom. So that's, you know, I would say anger is one of the most important energies to free up, to liberate, because so much of our life force gets trapped when we have the idea that anger is wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, I just have one final question for you, Arjuna. Yeah. I feel like a thread that has run through our entire conversation is Mm -hmm. upgrading, if you will, people's view of what spiritual practice might be like that it it might not be simply about resting in open space, but that there are practices we can do in our intimate relationships when we feel triggered. There are practices we can do to welcome and work with difficult feelings. And I'm curious, if you were to summarize, I mean, here you're somebody who has been so deeply involved in teaching spiritual practice and interviewing spiritual teachers in really surveying and synthesizing what's happening in the translucent revolution that we're a part of. What do you think mature spiritual life is like? What would you call a mature spiritual life? Um, I would say a mature spiritual life is one in which you in one in which you kind of assume in a certain way that this is a dream uh, and that the characters, the people you meet are characters in your dream and that basically you're, you're enjoying this dream for the purpose of awakening and giving the love that is your true nature. So, so that means if you, you know, whoever appears in your dream, the purpose of the dream is to the purpose of the dream is to be a source of genuine blessing. Uh, so I think, you know, one, definitely one uh, quality of spiritual maturity is that you're living, you're living in your own movie, not in somebody else's, which is why I think we need a transformed relationship to spiritual teachers and the concept of enlightenment. Because if you're living, if you're following a teacher, you basically end up living in somebody else's movie as, a, as an extra in somebody's movie. I would say spiritual maturity means that you are living in your own movie, um, but in a funny way, not your own movie like my movie, but you're living, you're living as, as, as the awake dreamer in which you become a source of blessing and giving, and you realize that the purpose of being here in this movie is not to get more stuff for you. The purpose, the blessing, the, the, the fulfillment of this dream is to unleash the gifts that you have to give. So I would say somehow spiritual maturity is a combination of waking up this dimension of yourself which is free and fully transforming it into a gift sexually, emotionally, in parenting, in business, in social and political action, in art, in education, that in every area of your life, your latent nature has been transformed into a gift that is not just obvious to you, but that is obvious and palpable to everyone else in your life. Well, and because you mentioned this term, blessing, do you think we could end our conversation? Could you offer our Sounds True listeners a blessing? Okay. Well, 
uh, the blessing I would wish on anybody is may you may you fully remember why you came here. May you live this life on your own terms. Uh, may you live from your own values. And may you find a way to fully give and discharge the gift that you were born to give. I've been speaking with Arjuna Ardag. He's the author of the book, Leap Before You Look, 72 Shortcuts for Getting Out of Your Mind and Into the Moment. There's also a two-CD set called Leap Before You Look, published by Sounds True, as well as a six-session audio learning course called Let Yourself Go, The Freedom and Power of Life Beyond Belief. Arjuna, uh, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Always a pleasure, Tammy. Thank you so much. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.